This episode contains descriptions of conversion therapy, homophobia, transphobia, physical and emotional abuse, and sexual assault. If you are a survivor yourself, or if these topics have the potential to trigger you, please proceed with caution. Previously on Gooned. It's taking kids, traumatizing them in a way they'll never be the same. It's terrifying when you're being sent to these places because then you're 180 miles from the closest town. It's the system gone mad. I mean, the, the system is broken and the, uh, the system has made an enormous problem, an enormous cost for everybody. I think we have to look at the cultural values of most folks who are from Utah. There's a strong Mormon conservative value framework. That's part of it, is those Mormon conservative values in Utah. Welcome back to Gooned, a podcast about the troubled teen industry. In today's episode, we're talking about the experiences of LGBTQ plus youth in the TTI and the industry's use of conversion therapy. These stories are especially harrowing and reveal the continued use of covert and overt conversion therapy, a practice that has been adamantly discredited by mainstream psychology. Throughout this episode, I and the survivors and staff we'll hear from use the term queer to refer to those whose gender, sexuality, or both fall outside of the cisgender heterosexual norms and binaries. The term queer, while considered a slur for many decades, has in recent years been reclaimed as an umbrella term for the LGBTQ community. A transgender person is someone whose gender does not correspond to the sex they were assigned at birth, and a non-binary person is someone whose gender falls outside of the male-female binary. A cisgender, or cis person, is someone whose gender corresponds with the sex they were assigned at birth. Wherever possible, I defer to an individual's preferred terminology for their gender and sexuality. In the process of reporting for Gund, I found that the majority of survivors I spoke with were queer, and nearly all of them remember a significant number of their peers in the TTI being part of the LGBTQ community. Throughout the courses of their employment, the former staff I spoke to also recall many of their kids falling under this umbrella. Again, little data exists about the demographics most impacted by the industry, but anecdotally, LGBTQ plus youth make up a significant portion of those sent away. Literally, almost everyone was queer there. It was ridiculous. It wasn't like they were purposefully trying to get queer kids because most of us like weren't even fully aware of it or like our parents weren't aware of it. But yeah, it's bizarre. Jamie, whose stories about referrals and daily life in the TTI we heard in episodes three and four, is non-binary. They remember that many of their peers in the TTI were queer, whether they realized it at the time and were out or whether they were still exploring their sexuality. Certain places will promote themselves as being like inclusive, accepting of LGBT people. That is a lot more for making them look better rather than actually being true. It's not that TTI programs are advertising themselves as either conversion camps or as safe havens for queer kids. LGBTQ plus people are at higher risk for mental illness due to discrimination, stigma, family rejection, harassment, and fear of violence, and are more likely to struggle with addiction or turn to alcohol and drugs for those same reasons. LGBTQ plus people are also overrepresented in both the adult and juvenile criminal justice systems. 
Because queer youth are at a higher risk for some of the things that land kids in TTI facilities, it makes sense that an outsized proportion of those in congregate care fall under the LGBTQ umbrella. And some kids are sent away with the intention of making them straight or cisgender. I was up there for, I want to say a year to two years, somewhere, a little bit more than a year, but it wasn't exactly two. Um, And my experience was a bit more extreme. I was sent there because I was gay. Um, And so I was sent specifically for conversion therapy. Charlie, the staff member we heard from in episode three, was sent to a TTI facility herself many years before she started working as a staff member at a different facility. Charlie is gay and was specifically sent away for conversion therapy. Conversion therapy, a general term used to describe any type of treatment which claims to turn a gay person straight or a trans person cisgender, has been around in many forms for decades. When the American Psychiatric Association published the first edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, in 1952, it classified homosexuality as a mental illness, which meant, of course, that it could be treated. That is, through various methods of retraining, gay people could not only act straight, but also become straight in their heads and hearts. The same sentiment was later echoed for transgender people, that they could somehow be turned cisgender. Various methods of quote-unquote treating queerness over the years have included electroconvulsive therapy, hormonal injections, surgery, psychedelic therapy, psychoanalysis, and psychotherapy. Of course, conversion therapy doesn't work. Never did, doesn't now, never will. There is absolutely zero reputable peer-reviewed evidence to indicate that any form of conversion therapy does anything other than harm the patient. Conversion therapy has been demonstrated to lead to self-hatred, alienation, acute and complex trauma, drug use and addiction, homelessness, depression, anxiety, and suicide. Homosexuality was removed from the DSM in 1987, and the American Psychiatric Association, along with pretty much every large, reputable health-related organization in the U.S., has since come out in staunch opposition to the practice or any purported effectiveness of conversion therapy. But that is not to say that conversion therapy stopped in 1987. Far from it. Even as the mainstream moved towards accepting that efforts to make gay people straight are unnecessary and inhumane, that consensus could not alter the personal, religious, and moral beliefs of individual therapists and some religious communities. Good morning, Brian. Well, good morning, George. For the last year, we've been investigating places that many claim no longer exist. Christian ministries are camps where gay teens are sent by parents who want their children to change their sexuality. To this day, conversion therapy in institutional settings continues to take place under the guise of religious ministry. Even since the APA and other organizations have come out against conversion, religious conversion camps and therapists have continued to practice and sometimes pop up in the news. A 2019 study by the Williams Institute estimates that of the nearly 700,000 LGBTQ adults in the U.S. who have undergone conversion therapy— 350,000 of them experienced it as teenagers. This is just one of a number of places discovered by ABC News in a year-long investigation. The Blessed Hope Boys Academy, a place where a Christian pastor will tell our ABC News undercover team that with a Bible and sometimes a belt, he knows how to deal with teenagers who consider themselves gay. According to the study, 20,000 LGBTQ plus youth between the ages of 13 and 17 will be subjected to conversion therapy before they turn 18. 
In a world where most mainstream practitioners have long since abandoned the practice, it often occurs behind closed doors at religious conversion camps. By and large, conversion therapy as it is practiced today finds its justification in religion, specifically Christianity. Perhaps you've heard the term, pray the gay away. To be clear, conversion camps and troubled teen industry facilities are different things. I was unable to find any currently operational TTI facilities openly advertising themselves to the public as conversion camps. But survivors report that in the troubled teen industry, not only are homophobia and transphobia rampant, but the practice of conversion therapy is not uncommon. It's very typical for programs to be subtly or not so subtly Christian. And when it comes to Utah, you know, where you have a lot of programs, there's obviously Mormon influence there. After three years in the TTI, Jamie conducted their own research into the industry and compiled an oral history of the effects of congregate care on adolescents. Jamie remembers both covert and overt instances of homophobia and conversion therapy at their facilities and found that their research confirmed this. In their research, they found, quote, Multiple participants reported conversion therapy by name when describing the approach used at the facility. Several participants were told by their therapists that their female crushes were, quote, grooming them. And one was told that, quote, if they were to get with a woman after treatment, it would be a sign of relapse. I spoke with five survivors who remember explicit use of conversion therapy, and nearly everyone remembered homophobic and transphobic sentiment among staff, in program materials, and in daily life. Conversion therapy is very much alive and well. I think a lot of it just doesn't look like the media narrative of what conversion therapy is. That's Tashi, who spent two years in wilderness therapy, residential treatment centers, and therapeutic boarding schools. Tashi, who is non-binary and queer, says that the conversion therapy they experienced was more insidious than the electroshock therapy of decades past. I think people have this idea of conversion therapy as you go in and you're gay, and when you leave, you think that you're straight and you think that it was a disease and you're cured and you either don't have gay thoughts anymore or, or you have them, but you're in denial about it. And, and anyway, by the end, you are convinced that you are straight or you are at least able to act straight enough and decide that that's the life you want for you. The reality of it is that you don't have to think that in order to be converted in a lot of ways and act that way. From the moment Tashi arrived at their first program, they found themselves immersed in a culture of homophobia, transphobia, repression, and shame. I came with a rainbow bracelet, and we weren't allowed to have rainbow things, but I think they could tell that I was really going to put up a fight about this. And so they let me keep it. And I still feel like it was little things like that, where it was like things that they would say, that they would say just enough to convince me that it was okay. And like just enough to keep me quiet, just enough that I'm not fighting back. Tashi explained that it wasn't just individual staff members, but the program's very core was rooted in homophobia and anti-gay sentiment. The skill book that we had Essentially, the behaviors and the skills that we had to follow and align with, one of them was called Setting Appropriate Boundaries. And in the book for that skill, it listed same-sex interactions beyond friendship as not setting an appropriate boundary. It outright had, like, being gay is wrong in the book. The same kind of narratives and ideology were present throughout all of them. The, the last one, it was in Utah, 
and it was run by Mormons and almost all of the staff that worked there were Mormon, all as far as I know. And the owners were Mormon and it was not advertised as a religious program, but when everybody in charge of you has the same values that ends up being put into the program. Though some staff members were less outwardly homophobic, the materials on which the program based its treatment model reified queerness as a problem and one that could be modified. We were not allowed to talk about being gay. It was not what we were there for, is what they would say. And that they didn't have a problem with it, but it's not what you're here for. And, you know, any sort of We weren't supposed to talk about relationships in general, but it was very clear that there was still a different attitude towards any sort of queer relationship. Queer kids in the program, whether they were out or closeted, lived in fear that the lack of privacy and constant monitoring at the facility would get them in trouble. The way that they monitored us and had us monitored every interaction, every touch that we had with anybody else, we weren't allowed to touch each other. If you wanted to hug somebody, you had to ask staff and then they would watch and they would tell you if you were hugging for too long. And then that was it. One time I, you know, the thing where you like put your hand on someone's knee and then you run it down and it tickles them. (laughs) I did that to my friend one time and we both got pulled aside and got in trouble for not setting appropriate boundaries because, and I quote, that's how it all starts. (laughs) Meaning that me touching my friend's knee was... Like that, that was going to evolve into us having a secret gay relationship at the program. The program worked hard to ensure that queerness was never visible and that those who made their queerness visible were sufficiently shamed and punished. I realized that because we weren't allowed to touch each other at all, I was just thinking about this a few days ago. When I see someone with the same anatomy as me, there's still a mechanism in my brain that tells me that person's off limits. You're not allowed to touch them. If you have any sort of physical affection with that person, it's going to be misinterpreted and you're going to be in trouble. And like, it's wrong. Since leaving the program almost a decade ago, Tashi still finds seeds of internalized homophobia within themselves. I left there not thinking that I wasn't queer, but having these deeply ingrained behaviors into me now that still prevented me from exploring my queerness further even though I still knew I was queer. I've always known I was queer, and there was never a point in my journey through treatment or anything else that I thought I was straight. I didn't know that I was non-binary before going into the program, but I'm sure I would have figured it out a hell of a lot sooner (laughs) if I hadn't been there. They didn't change my identity, but they changed how I behaved and how like my brain operated in regards to how I responded to being put in queer scenarios. Conversion therapy didn't make Tashi straight, and it didn't make them cisgender, but it did plant seeds of shame and harmful learned behaviors that have stuck with them since. When I look at photos of myself after the program versus before I went in, I look so much more like myself before than after. I was looking at some pictures of myself from right after I graduated and I was like I look Mormon (laughs) like I look like this perfect little little girl that they wanted me to be and they monitor everything so all of your clothes you know it's weird yeah it's really weird to look back at those photos it's really crazy to see the person that I was after I left because I 
I don't recognize that it's like not me. And it's taken a lot to, yeah, to rediscover that sense of self outside of who they coerce me into being. As time goes by, I realize more and more, like there was even, I had some realizations two days ago about the way that it's still affecting the way I think and the way that I act that I hadn't noticed before. And so the realizations kind of never stop coming. <laughs> that's how the conversion therapy works. Like that's one very specific example. There are other examples, but it's very subtle and it's very Mormon because <laughs> the Mormon perspective that I've been told by other Mormons outside of the program is like, oh no, we love gay people. You can have gay thoughts. You just can't act on them. So it's like, no, 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 you can be gay. You just can't be gay. (laughs) Like sexuality, gender is also heavily policed within many TTI facilities. Programs are often gender segregated and facilities advertising themselves as all girls also take in transgender boys, often with the idea that their gender identity is a symptom of mental illness. The only person that I know of that identified as trans before coming into the program, that was part of why they had been sent away. So it was part of why they were sent away. And then basically they were told that that was part of their mental health issues and that was a symptom of their mental health issues and that they needed to work on that. And I don't think the pronouns were ever respected, but when they started using different pronouns for themselves and and going by their birth name, um, they were rewarded for that and that was seen as progress. And so that was the most outright example of direct conversion therapy in that very obvious way that I know of. Even those who were not sent away for the purpose of conversion found themselves in an environment that consistently invalidated their existence as a trans person. With trans people, there were several who were like forcibly detransitioned. It was like pathologized, them being told that they weren't actually trans. They were just dealing with this mental health issue or they were trying to hurt their parents was one thing that I found in my research. In their survey of 19 survivors, Jamie found that many trans kids were forced to act as their gender assigned at birth or face punishment, ridicule, and a longer stay. Transgender people were forced to change their names and pronouns and their peers were punished for using the ones they preferred. One person shared that questioning their gender was, quote, listed on their reasons for admission and that they left, quote, a lot more feminine. Madison, one of the former staff members we heard from in episode three, was explicitly instructed not to call students by their preferred names or use their correct pronouns. She hated having to dead name or call students by their birth name, but it was between that or losing her job. Working in Utah, you are not allowed to be as trans-affirming as you want to be, and there was a very large percentage of trans students. I would say there was a point where I think all of the kids identified as LGBTQ and at least half of them used pronouns different than the gender assigned to them at birth. But we weren't allowed to use those names and pronouns without both therapist and parent approval. And so we're forced to continually dead name students if they did not get permission to use those names and pronouns, which is just patently ridiculous to me. Many TTI facilities not only invalidate trans kids, but also deny gender-affirming medical care. 
Madison remembers trans students waiting for the day they could go home to seek out affirming care and begin hormone treatment. And Charlie, another staff member who we heard from in episode three, says the facility that employed her even forcibly medically detransitioned its students who had already begun hormone therapy. They were specifically not allowing gender-affirming care while the kids were there, even if they had previously participated in gender-affirming care before entering the program. So, like, for example, we had one kid who was actively on testosterone and was in the middle of medically transitioning, starting to physically transition as well. When he came into our program, he specifically had to stop taking any sort of testosterone or hormone replacement or hormone blockers or anything like that. What I heard a lot was, I can't wait to get on testosterone after I get out of here. Or I can't wait to get on estrogen after I get out of here. I don't think any of them were allowed to do any kind of HRT. Most of them, it was too late for them to start puberty blockers. So it just was a big mess of unethical practices and transphobia. Queer kids trapped in the TTI may not be undergoing the medically invasive therapies of decades past to make them straight or cisgender, but the brand of conversion therapy that is practiced today is just as harmful. And you don't have to go far back in time to find survivors who do remember enduring those antiquated techniques of conversion therapy. It was explicit because they used hypnotherapy on me uh, to try to turn me straight. So they were all Mormon, you know, very anti-gay, very anti-LGBT. It was just very Southern values, like Southern Christian. So that was like pretty overt. Casey spent more than four years in various wilderness and residential treatment programs. Casey is trans and was openly gay when he was sent away. I was born female, so I was raised as like the youngest girl, you know, and the daughter I was also, you know, queer, and it just wasn't very accepted or anything like that. And I was openly, like, very gay at the time, like, really exploring that part of myself. And I was always getting in trouble because I was so gay, you know, so gay. And I was not, not cool, not cool with them at all. When Casey was sent away in the 2000s, he was one of the only openly gay kids at his program. It was usually me who would get in trouble because I was the openly gay one. Um, And then the girls who weren't openly gay, they wouldn't get in as much trouble. But I was definitely a target because of my sexuality. Not only was he singled out, but Casey underwent hypnotherapy by an untrained practitioner that was intended to change his sexuality. In an article Casey wrote for Medium, he recalls, quote, He held no such credentials and was little more than a man with a lot of money and power. He would try to hypnotize me during sessions, convince me that I wasn't bisexual, and also tried to plant false memories in my head. Since he was Mormon, religion was deeply entrenched in his philosophies. End quote. As of 2023, 21 states and Washington, D.C. ban conversion therapy for minors. Six states have partial bans on conversion therapy for minors. These bans prohibit only state-licensed mental health practitioners from the practice and don't apply to those who aren't state-licensed or to religious clergy. 19 states have no conversion therapy laws in place. Indiana actually prohibits bans on conversion therapy, and Alabama, Florida, and Georgia prohibit the enforcement of conversion therapy bans. Many of the bans that do exist were only signed or filed within the last five or six years, and even the very first ban on conversion therapy in the U.S., California Senate Bill 1172, 
wasn't filed until 2012. As conversion therapy bans worked their way through the courts and the news cycle, and as the survivor community has grown online, some TTI programs have released statements asserting their support for and acceptance of queer youth. Jamie remembers when one facility they attended, which medically detransitioned its students and practiced conversion therapy, put out a statement in support of the LGBTQ community. And they were like, we are so inclusive. We totally don't hate LGBT people. It's not true. <laughs> it's, there's no way it's true, that place. Forcibly detransitioned people, lots of conversion therapy. They put out a statement after like staff was exposed as being racist and transphobic on Facebook. In 2021, the academic director at Utah's Uinta Academy, Valerie Gia Colon, was fired after a group of survivors found homophobic, transphobic, and racist posts on her Facebook page. An employee at a local youth residential treatment center has been let go due to online comments they posted. Screenshots of Facebook posts allegedly made by a high-ranking employee at Uinta Academy were shared online, where users called them racist and transphobic. The employee was suspended, then terminated. The fired employee was not named. The program rushed to claim acceptance of the LGBTQ community with the executive director saying the posts were, quote, counter to the culture of inclusivity and acceptance that we promote at Uinta Academy, going on to say that the program offers a, quote, warm, nurturing, family-style environment where all students are supported, accepted, and empowered. But Uinta Academy was where Sam, Tashi, and Jamie say they experienced and witnessed conversion therapy and forcible detransition. In fact, it was Sam and Jamie who found those posts and exposed them online. The academic, like, principal sort of head figure at Uinta, um, I found her Facebook one night, and I found her, her Facebook, and I was blown away, like, it's insane, absurd what I, like, ran into on her page. It was just horrible. A lot of her posts were about, like, discontinuing care for trans kids and how, like, race inequality, like, racial discrimination, like, doesn't happen anymore. Like, we're not in the Civil War anymore. And, like, all these, like, crazy posts that are, like, so detached from reality that it blew our minds that she was working with children in care. So I started taking screenshots of everything that was there. And I, like... I messaged my friend Jamie and I was like, do you see this shit? Like, this is insane. And we like put together a Facebook post that had all the screenshots and then like a like full on essay about our feelings towards this and how horrible it was and how disappointing this is. And um, so we posted it. And then a couple days later, it got picked up by the news because someone else translated it to Reddit. And suddenly Fox something news in Utah was reporting that she had been fired. Of course, firing one academic director won't stop conversion therapy or alter the pervasive culture of homophobia and transphobia in the troubled teen industry. But Sam and Jamie's exposing of Valerie made them feel like they had some of their power back, that not only did the program fail to make them straight or cisgender, but it failed to silence them. That was like, whoa, wait, hold on. We did something? It felt like we kind of rattled their foundation a little bit. And that was really, like, exciting but also terrifying. The statement that the school released was just a PR move. Some survivors think these statements are even more troubling, that asserting support could lull queer kids or their parents into a false sense of security. 
they're not using the word. So they're clearly not equipped to be taking those people in if they don't even know the fucking language when they're trying to talk about them. <laughs> like, okay, so is the intention genuine? It, it was almost scarier for me to think that like they really were trying. Conversion therapy was like sneaking around on its very tiptoes, trying not to be seen, but like was so heavily leaving a mark on all of us that there was no way to deny that it, like it happened. Even though there have been some years since I've passed, there's no way that that place is somehow actually accepting of LGBT people now. Even if somewhere claims that it's okay, it's really, it's not. The lasting effects of conversion therapy, no matter what form it takes, are devastating. There's the confusion and self-hatred that comes from being told that your existence is wrong, dirty, and in need of fixing. There's the crushing weight of internalized homophobia and transphobia. The mark that conversion therapy in the TTI left on the survivors I spoke to often showed up years and decades later in ways they didn't expect. But despite the program's efforts to silence them, queer kids still sought community within its walls. In June 2015, the Supreme Court ruled in the landmark civil rights case of Obergefell v. Hodges, which required every state in the U.S. to recognize and officiate same-sex marriages. Sam and Jamie, who were in the same residential treatment facility at the time, remember listening to the ruling on the radio, huddled together and locked away, but witnessing history. Me and Jamie were actually together um, in the program when the federal law passed protecting queer marriages. Good evening. It's the most important gay rights ruling ever. And, and the radio was on for it. It comes from a Supreme Court that just 30 years ago said gay people could be punished as criminals. And we had like a glorious like 10 seconds where we heard the announcement. We were like screaming and jumping and like huge cheer, then singing as the decision reaches the crowd. Oh my gosh, it was just like the sweetest thing. Like to experience it with my sweet friend was like incredible. On same-sex marriage still in effect in 14 And that was like a shining light of like queerness has my back. Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote the five to four ruling joined by the courts And then the staff just like slammed the radio off. And we weren't allowed to talk about it. Despite the enduring trauma of conversion therapy and the lasting scars of being sent away, Sam and Jamie and other survivors remember moments of hope. Moments that reminded them, reassured them, that maybe someday in the future they could work past their collective trauma. Perhaps once they got out, there would be a path towards healing. Maybe there was hope for the future. Next time on Gooned. I have to really limit how much time I spend talking about this and looking into it because it's really easy for me to get like re-traumatized. I mean, I still, you know, I don't have as many nightmares as I did before. There's no like healing actually happening in, in viewing what that next stage of coming out of the program and reintegrating actually looks like in any way. I'd be like with my friends and I just I just couldn't even speak. I was so traumatized. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gooned. To see the posts that got Valerie Gia Cologne fired, head to patreon.com slash goonpodcast. Remember to rate, review, and follow Gooned wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out goonpodcast.com for more information. Gooned is researched, reported, and edited by me, Emma Lehman. Original music for the show was created by Olivia Springberg. Original artwork was created by Sam Doe. Sarah Lukowski and Avery Erskine copy-edited and consulted on the show. 
Thank you to all of the amazing survivors, activists, researchers, former staff, families, experts, and everyone else who lent their stories to this podcast, both anonymous and otherwise.